0: It is so good to uh, worship the Lord together. Many of you here today are familiar with um, C.S. Lewis's, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, certainly are aware of the chief character in that series, whose name is Aslan. Aslan is the magnificent lion, and in the story, he is a symbol of Jesus. As you know, the story goes, initially, the children are in England, and they go to spend some time in the summer, I believe it's with their uncle in his home, and they find a magic wardrobe through which they enter, and they find themselves in this magical land of Narnia, quite different from their own world. Fast forward to about a year later, and once again, they're leaving uh, um, uh, and going to various um, boarding schools, and they're at a train station and. All of a sudden, at the train station, it begins to collapse in on them. And again, they are magically transported to this wonderful land of Narnia. But it takes them a while to find themselves there because they realize that everything has changed. And they can't really locate themselves in the land initially. Buildings that they had been familiar with are now in ruins. And what the children don't understand is that while only one year had passed for them in England, over 1,300 years had passed in Narnia. One night, as they had been there for a while, they were just about done and ready to give up because of the battling that they had been in. They were sitting around a campfire, and suddenly this shadow emerged on the edge of the clearing. And little Lucy, who's one of the prime characters or main characters in the story, sees Aslan, and she runs up to Aslan. She grabs the lion around the neck and hugs him and runs her fingers through his mane, and he even lets her ride on his back. And she says, Aslan, you're so much bigger than you were last year. Aslan smiles at her and says, Lucy, it hasn't been a year, you know. It's been thousands of years. And the truth is, I haven't changed a bit. I am the same size that I've always been. In fact, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I've noticed something strange. The more people get to know me, the bigger I look to them. That's been my desire over these last four weeks as we spent some time considering Jesus through the Scriptures. Because that's such an incredible insight that C.S. Lewis had there into the life of Jesus, that the more we probe into the work and the life of Jesus, the bigger he becomes to us. So a number of weeks ago, we started in Genesis 3, and we considered Jesus the bruiser of the serpent's head. And then we spent some time thinking about him as our prophet and our priest and our king. And then we stopped in in Isaiah 53 for a little while and we thought of him as our suffering servant. And then just last Sunday, we considered how Jesus most regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. The final picture that I want us to consider as we look at Jesus to enlarge our view of him is from Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you're certainly welcome to turn there. If you're using a Bible in the front of you, I don't know what page it is, but I do know that Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and so you can find it easily. I want to just read, starting in verse 1, the first seven verses, and then we'll read the rest a little bit later. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Revelation chapter 5 is part of a single vision of heaven that began in chapter 4, and I think actually that the vision doesn't end until the first part of chapter 8. But one of the things that takes us back in the book of Revelation, and in particularly in chapter four and five, are the images that are there. They stand out to us, and it's these images in Revelation that enable us to have our perception in, of the world in which we live transformed by heaven's view of earth. You see, readers' view of the first uh, uh, readers of the first century were constantly bombarded and confronted with powerful images just like we are today. These images dominate the landscape, and they would be seared into their minds. We have the same kind of images. We have economic images. Um, uh, They certainly might be the the trading floor in New York, or we have uh, buildings that are embedded into our minds, the destruction of the trade center in New York, or maybe the Pentagon we have world leaders like Kim Jong-un or maybe Margaret Thatcher or Stalin or Churchill or Hitler that are embedded into our imaginations uh, Images that are just stuck there. We have military images um, If we've been watching the news at all in the last month or two, it's probably a missile that's being launched from North Korea. It might be some uh, military parade of some incredible army marching down the road. But we all have these uh, images that are seared into our minds, and they are powerful impressions that are made there of human might and ingenuity and even pagan religion. And these images tend to shape the way that we think. Revelations provides us with a new set of images. They are meant to counter these images that are so frequent in the world around us and impress on us a different way of looking at the world in which we live. In fact, how the world looks from heaven's perspective. And in chapters 4 and 5, we hear over here how much singing and praising and delight there is in heaven over what God is doing here on earth. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of our Christian imaginations, refurbishing it with an alternate vision of how the world is and what it will be. The inhabitants of heaven, as it were, can already see things from God's perspective. As a result, they know how things turn out. And as they think about the church on earth, past, present, and future, they burst out into glorious and triumphant praise. This is how heaven looks at the future of the world in which we live. And it's important that we consider taking those images of heaven ourselves and pushing out the images of earth that are there. Daryl Johnson, a commentator on Revelation, talks about heaven also as not being a place far away. We often think of heaven as something way up there, way far away, but it's not that way. Heaven is really just another dimension of reality. It's here, it's everywhere, it's right around us. We just don't have the eyes to see it. And there's a sense in which Revelation 4 and 5 is giving us eyes to see the spiritual reality that's all around us. I've used the, the, um, the story of Elisha, from Second uh, Kings to help us, re- remind us of this a couple of times. Elisha was one that was hated by the Syrian king because he kept thwarting his attempts to conquer or catch him because God would show him where, where the king was going to be and he would evade capture. Eventually, Elisha finds himself in a city and he's staying there. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed to the Lord, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. God just needs to give us eyes to see the spiritual reality. That's all around us. And so, Revelation 5 gives us a vision of heaven that gives us an even clearer picture or vision of earth. And this is why we need to have these images seared into our minds to replace the images of the world and the media. And there's three in particular. There's many, but there's three in particular. One comes from chapter 4, and it's a throne. It's the throne of heaven. It's the throne of the universe and loved one. It's occupied. Have a vision in your mind when the world seems chaotic that the throne of the universe is occupied by God. And then there's a second picture that we get and you might have heard it as I read. It's a scroll or a book. This is a book of all the predetermined purposes of God from the foundation of the world to its end and all of these purposes are worked out. Heaven bursts into praise because God is sovereign. And so they have this incredible vision of the scroll and this understanding that God knows the end from the beginning. And then third image that we should have seared into our minds is the vision of a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Because all history, all history is tied to the work of this lamb. And the whole cosmos erupts in worship at what he accomplishes in the universe. And so we come to chapter 5, verse 1, and the first part of verse 1 picks up the heart of chapter 4. It's the picture of an occupied throne. Remember, in chapter 2, or chapter 4, verse 2, John says, Behold, a throne set in heaven, and on the throne, or and one on the throne. Loved ones, this is a picture that we need to have constantly. In fact, it fueled the psalmist meditation again and again. In the book of Psalms, I was just reading this morning in my devotions in Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, the one who sits enthroned in heaven. What a way to walk through life, to face the difficulties and trials of life, by lifting up your eyes to heaven and realize that the throne of heaven guides and directs the affairs of this world. And then he sees something new. Something that wasn't in chapter 4 but is now in chapter 5. It's a new detail. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and it was sealed with seven seals. Seven as I will mention a couple times is a number of completeness or fullness. This expresses that the scroll uh, contains the full or the complete plan of God for this earth and for this cosmos. The right hand is one that expresses power and authority. And in the scroll, it's written on on back and front. It's full. It's overflowing. It's complete. In those days, scrolls could be up to 10 meters in length. They could contain a lot of information. And so he sees this scroll in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. What's in the scroll? Why is it sealed? When will it be opened? And why is John so alarmed that there's nobody found in heaven or in the universe that's able to open it? As I was thinking of this, I was thinking of the, 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 the uh, uh, what do we call it um, when it's not real? <laughs> the fake of Arthur, the, the, the story of Arthur the king. And uh, it's the well-known legend. That's the word I'm looking for. And uh, in his day, there was a sword that had been embedded in, In a rock, and as the ancient story goes, the sorcerer Merlin had devised this test that would identify the true heir to the throne. And only the individual who could come and dislodge that magical stone or sword that was embedded in the stone would have the right to reign over the kingdom. And as the legend goes, Arthur pulls the sword from the stone, making it clear to everyone that he is the rightful king. This is similar to Revelation chapter five, and I wonder if the legend of Arthur was taken from Revelation chapter five. Only the task in Revelation five is to open a seven-sealed scroll. This calls for somebody of particular qualification. He must be the true heir. He must be God. I'm of the mind that as we think about this scroll, as I've already indicated, that it's God's full redemptive plan and the future history of all his creation, including all the judgments that are to come. And it culminates in the vindication of his servants and the unchallenged establishment of his dominion on earth and in heaven. The scroll, in other words, contains the full account of what God, in his sovereign will, has determined for the destiny of the world. It's the plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's what we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's contained in that scroll. And in verse 2 and 3, we find that a call goes out then, a loud call. And it had to be a loud call because it had to reach the farthest corners of the cosmos. The call is who is worthy To open the scroll and to loose its contents. It goes into heaven. It goes into earth. It goes under the earth. And no one steps forward. Not only could they not open it, they couldn't even look at it. No one and nothing in all of creation proves adequate for carrying out God's purposes. John recounts for us his initial reaction. I wept. Another version said, I cried. And I cried. And so does our world as it looks around and it longs for somebody to step up to the plate, somebody to take control, somebody to solve the problems of the world, somebody to end suffering and pain. And nobody is able to do that. John is overwhelmed by a sense of doom. The tension in heaven must have been palatable as they waited and they waited and they waited and no one, Stepped forward. At last, the tension is broken. It says in verse 5 one of the elders around the throne says, Weep no more, stop your crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I wonder even at that point, although it doesn't recount it here, that all heaven must have erupted. There is one who is able to take the scroll and to break its seals. And what a description of this one. The Christology in this passage is just oozing with incredible insight. He's first described as the lion of Judah. We sang about that a little bit earlier today. It comes from Genesis chapter 49, verse 9. When Jacob dies, he blesses his 12 sons with prophetic language. And in the case of Judah, the founder of the tribe of Judah, Jacob promises that the scepter shall never depart from him. And he describes him as a lion's whelp, The lion of Judah then reflects the kingly figure who God promises would arise from the tribe of Judah to lead God's people. And he would be like a lion rising to devour its prey, a ferocious warrior that would come from Judah. And then he switches and he describes him as the root of David. It's the second title, and it's quoted from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. They shall come forth a shoot out of the stalk of Jesse. When the line of David seemed that it had ended, all of a sudden there was a shoot that came out. It's Israel's hope of Messiah, with a Davidic descendant who will one day come and reign in peace and righteousness and over all of God's people in the whole world. See, both of these titles had messianic expectations for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And those things were sought or looked at from the New Testament people and they applied those to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one in whom they believed both of those prophecies were fulfilled. The person defined as the Lion of Judah and as the Root of the root of David is the one who has the ability to open the scroll and it seals. This is what John hears. Now, there's something important that goes on in the book of Revelations, and I, I don't have time to do this a lot. Uh, I might give you one illustration, but often what John hears and what he sees are two different things. And it's helpful to understand that when you're trying to make sense of the book of Revelation, because, uh, in, for instance, in chapter 7, when, he's, when there's this interlude in heaven, it says that John hears a number of those who are sealed, 144,000, and we spend all kinds of time trying to figure out, well, who the 144,000 must be? And then a little bit later, verse 9, though, it says, and after this, I behold, I looked, and I saw a multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I heard a number, I saw a great multitude. We have that woven throughout Revelation as they say, well, here, John initially, he hears this, this, this lion of Judah, this root out of Jesse. That's what he, what he hears, but what he turns, this is what he describes. He says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. It's the last thing we would have expected as he whirled around to see what he had heard. What we would have expected to see was this royal military figure in all his garb and all its might ready for battle. That's what we sang. The Lion of Judah, our warrior, fighting our battles for us. What he actually saw must have perplexed him. He's expecting to see this warrior and he turns around and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. It's a vision of weakness rather than of strength. This is certainly not what would have met his ears. The conquering lion, the warrior king of Judah's tribe, and David's line, the champion of God's people, appears before John's eyes as a lamb, slaughtered, yet standing. This is perhaps one wrote the most wrenching rebirth of images in all of literature. The slot in the system reserved for the lion has been filled by the Lamb of God. The lion has prevailed, but I saw a lamb. Another writes, this is one of the most beautiful mixed metaphors in all the Bible. A lion is a lamb. And the direction of the metaphor is important. It's not a lamb to a lion. It's a lion to a lamb. He prevailed not by his military might, but by his sacrifice. It's impossible to overstate this transformation, that the lion is transformed into a lamb that becomes our Passover lamb. It is the slaughtered lamb who makes possible our final exodus from sin and the forces of evil to God. The path of victory for the slaughtered lamb tells us something about God, how God goes about his work in the world. It's through apparent weakness rather than through strength. We find that woven throughout the Bible. The slaughtered lamb is God's way, I think, of showing contempt for the power of the world. God doesn't establish his kingdom with invading armies and with intimidation, as did the Romans, but through the humiliating death of Jesus Christ. The lamb wins. By going to the cross. The Lamb overcomes by giving up his life as a sacrifice. You know what this means, then, loved ones? We're not waiting for a future battle to be fought. The battle has already been fought, and where was it fought? It was fought on the cross. That's where the lamb won. Everything now is just mop-up until our king returns. The cross is the central point in history, as is the exaltation of the Son of Man when he was raised into heaven, ascended into heaven, is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, as Daniel chapter 7 reminds us. He is now the exalted Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. The vision of the Lamb. Standing as though slaughtered in the midst of the throne is significant. Seven is a number of perfection, as I've already mentioned. It's a number of fullness. It's a number of completion. And so the lamb has seven horns. What do those horns symbolize? Well, they symbolize power and strength and might. Seven horns portray his supreme power. They are the visual equivalent of almighty ascribed to the Lord God. This lamb is omnipotent, all-powerful. And then we come to the eyes. The eyes are symbolic of knowledge and of presence. One like the Son of Man stood among the seven lampstands in Revelation 2 and 3. He's everywhere present and he's all-knowing because at the beginning of each of those church's letters, he says, I know where you live. I know this. I know that. It's reminding us that this lamb is God. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. This is the lamb who is standing in the middle of the throne. Verse 7 says, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And the entire cosmos erupts in worship. This is the one who stands in the midst of the throne. This is the one who is able to take the scroll and open it. This is God. The slaughtered sacrifice stands no longer dead but alive forevermore and ready to open and execute God's plan for the end of this world. And as I say, heaven explodes in praise. This is how best to describe what John writes for us in the next verses in chapter 5. Three explosions of worship. I don't know if you ever thought of worship that way, an explosion of worship. I've never been part of a worshiping church that has simply exploded all of a sudden because something about God has so fallen on them that all they can do is just erupt in praise that a truth about God or a song is sung or a prayer is given and all of a sudden just God's people just erupt or explode in praise. This is what happens in heaven as they begin to see that God's plan will be fulfilled, that God's plan will be worked out and it will be worked out through the one who is the Lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, the slaughtered lamb. So John describes these explosions of worship. The first explosion of worship is from the inner circle that's standing around the throne. It says there, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests who are a God, and they shall reign on the earth. The celestial beings, four living creatures, the highest order, I think, of celestial beings in all of creation, with characters that characteristics that come from both the seraphim and the cherubim, who represent all of creation, including man. They have the four different faces on them. And they stand before God and they are guardians, I think, of holiness and guardians of the throne of God and guardians against defilement. We might call them the guardians of the universe, so to speak. And they execute various aspects of God's judgment. And with the four living beings are 24 elders. I don't see them as human. I see them as also angelic, possibly the council of the Lord's heavenly um, servants and advisors all gathered around him, celestial beings with a ruling function. And all of them respond in incredible awe. They fall down and they worship the lamb, each holding a harp and a bowl full of incense. And what's the bowl full of incense? It's the prayers of God's people. This is mind-blowing, guys. This is the prayers of God's people. The saints are making a difference in how history unfolds by their prayers. I wrestle with prayer. I, I don't get it. I, I've been, I struggle with prayer all the time. And I still am not convinced or not assured or, or I don't know how to explain entirely how you have an entirely um, sovereign God in every aspect and detail of life. And yet my prayers actually make a difference and can influence the course of history. But here we kind of see them coming together, so to speak. The saints are making a difference in how history unfolds by their prayers. Their prayer for justice is now before the throne. Their prayers are shaping the future. And in this sense, they are already reigning with Christ. That is the kind of world we live in, loved ones, where your prayers and my prayers make a difference. And they're before the throne of God and they sing a new song. New songs are composed and sung to celebrate new events in which the Lord has rescued his people. Every single one of you here today who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a new song to sing. Because you were this and now you are this. And your circumstances are unique. While your Savior is the same, your circumstances are unique. And every one of us ought to be able to sing a new song that we couldn't sing the time when we didn't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that also goes with the people of God, though. That the people of Israel, when they were brought out of Egypt and they had crossed the Red Sea, one of the things they did when they gathered, there was a Miriam led them in a new song. And you can read the new song in Exodus chapter 15. It's this incredible song of praise to God who has delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. Now there is this new song in heaven and it's even greater than that song because this is a song that recounts the salvation of of every tribe and language and people and nation and those who have been made now a kingdom and priest to our God. What a song it must have been in heaven. As I started our service this morning, the psalmist invites us to do the same thing. Oh, sing a song, a new song to the Lord all the earth sing to the Lord bless his name tell of his salvation day by day so there's this explosion of worship in the inner circle of heaven but then there's an explosion of worship which comes when the heavenly angels join in then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Hold your hand over your ears. Can you imagine the sound of this? 10,000 times 10,000 is a 100 million. 1,000 times 1,000 is a million. This is the writer's way of saying millions upon millions upon millions of angels erupt in praise to God. I'm aware of some stadiums in Europe and I think some in the states that seat over 100,000 people. I'm aware of that stadium down in Seattle. I can't remember its name now where the Seattle Seahawks play, but they describe the noise there as the 12th man because when they start cheering and yelling, it's so loud that the opposing team can't hear themselves talk and hear the, uh, the, the plays that are made. Well, consider how heaven... Must be reverberating as all of the angels, multiple millions of these angels, erupt in praise to God. They explode in worship to the Lamb. Fix that in your minds, loved ones. Seven words of adoration again, perfection, fullness, completeness, perfect praise and worship. A seven part rehearsal of the Lamb's excellencies. Power and wisdom and might and riches describe the resources that qualify him to reign and rule over history. Honor and glory and blessing describe the responses to the Lamb's worthiness. So the inner circle erupts in praise. The extended circle erupts in praise. And then look at what verse 13 says. The whole cosmos erupts in praise and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be glory and honor and might and blessing forever and ever. You see the incredible way this elevates Christ and tells us of his deity because God alone is to be worshipped, and yet here we have them singing praise to God who has created and the Lamb who has redeemed without any concern whatsoever. All creation, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, no one is left out from all of the universe. The fullest reaches of all of creation, all breaking out in this cumulative song of worship to the enthroned one, the creator of everything, and to the lamb who is the redeemer of everything? Could this be part of the image that Paul saw when he wrote in Philippians that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Is your Jesus too small? We do refer to him as our older brother, as Hebrews tells us. We love to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And that's right, and that's true. Do you think of Jesus this way? The center of the universe, the redeemer of the universe, the one on whom all of history hinges, the one whom multiple millions of angels, the highest order of angels, all the cosmos, falls down in worship. Is your Jesus too small? Loved ones, what happens in heaven should change the way we see everything on earth. I was troubled with my own reaction as I was reading these verses over and over again this week. Troubled by the death of awe. What have you felt as we've read and as we've worked through this text? Was there even a sense of gravitas or of the glory or the power or the incredible worship? Or are we thinking about the football game we're going to watch when we get home or stuff we have to do when we get home or what's coming in the coming year? Picture in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is a reality more deeply real than anything we experience here on earth. The eternal rule of God is awesome. The Adoring creatures in heaven and the authority of the Lamb to carry out on earth God's plan for the rescue and restoration of all of creation to its chief end, which is the glorification and the enjoyment of God. Ought that not to create a deep sense of awe or a growing sense of awe in us? This is my Father's world, or ne'er let me e'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. I hope you understood or get that the center of reality is the lamb. I don't think you'd find a secular historian in the world who would ever say that Jesus Christ is the center of history, but he is. Because without his life, his sacrifice, his death, God's plan for history of the world would still be sealed. And history only makes sense in the light of what God is doing in this world and what God is bringing to pass in this world. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything under the earth is dependent upon the Lamb. Are you? Are you? Let the images of Revelation 5 be seared into your mind. The lion, the root, the lamb, the scroll, the cosmic worship, the occupied throne. Bring it back to those three alone even and let these be seared into your mind. There is a throne. And it's what? Occupied. There is a scroll and it contains what? sovereign purposes of God for this world. There is a lamb who has done what? Who has redeemed and purchased a host of people who cannot be numbered to be priests and kings to our God. Finally, the way to the enthroned one, the way to the one who sits on the throne, the only way is through the lamb. Standing in the midst of the throne. I think this image or this vision gives insight or explanation into Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the only one who is to be praised because he has purchased our redemption. History is tied to the Lamb. Listen to the Lamb. Follow the Lamb. Worship the Lamb. You see, when we see reality through the lens of Revelation 5, we will be able to join in the heavenly song with loud voices saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we'll be able to join with the whole cosmos saying to Him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. I hope Jesus is bigger to us. Not because he's changed, but because we've glimpsed a little bit more of him. Father, I pray that the Images in the vision of heaven that we get in Revelation 4 and 5 will begin to eclipse the images that we get through media here on earth. And that we will increasingly see earth from heaven's perspective rather than the other way around. I thank you for the lamb. I thank you for the lamb that is standing even though he was slaughtered. And I pray for anyone here today who maybe is wrestling with these sorts of things and giving thought to spiritual realities and wrestling with Jesus Christ and who he is, I pray that your spirit might take something that was said or sung or prayed and begin to open their heart and their mind to this incredible eternal truth of who Jesus is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.